Section thirty five of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. John Adams, Part One. The subject of this narrative was a great grandson of Henry Adams who emigrated from England about 1640 with a family of eight sons, being one of the earliest settlers in the town of Braintree, Massachusetts, where he had a grant of a small tract of 40 acres of land. The father of John Adams, a deacon of the church, was a farmer by occupation, to which was added the business of shoemaking. He was a man of limited means, however, was enabled by hard pinching to give his son a fairly good education the old french and indian war was then at its height and in a remarkable letter to a friend which contained some curious prognostications as to the relative population and commerce of england and her colonies a hundred years hence young adams describes himself as having turned politician he succeeded in gaining charge of the grammar school in worcester massachusetts but instead of finding this duty agreeable he found it a school of affliction and turned his attention to the study of law determined to become a first-class lawyer he placed himself under the especial tuition of the only lawyer of whom worcester though the county seat could boast he had thought seriously of the clerical profession but according to his own expressions the frightful engines of ecclesiastical councils of diabolical malice and calvinistic good-nature the operation of which he had witnessed in some church controversy in his native town terrified him out of it adams was a very ambitious man already he had longings for distinction could he have obtained a troop of horse or a company of infantry he would undoubtedly have entered the army nothing but want of patronage prevented his becoming a soldier after a two years course of study he returned to his native town braintree and in seventeen fifty eight commenced practice in suffolk county of which boston was the shire town by hard study and hard work he gradually introduced himself into practice and in seventeen sixty four married a young lady far above his station in life in our perusal and study of eminent men who have risen by their own exertions to a higher sphere in life we are not at all surprised to find that they have invariably married noble women ladies who have always maintained a restraining influence when the desire for honour and public attention would appeal to their baser self and whose guiding influence tended to strengthen their efforts when their energies seemed to slacken so it was with john adams his wife was a lady of rare abilities and good sense, admirably adapted to make him happy. Boys, be careful whom you marry. Shortly after his entrance into the practice of the law, the attempt at parliamentary taxation diverted his attention from his profession to politics. He was a most active oppositionist. He promoted the call of the town of Braintree to instruct the representatives of the town on the subject of the Stamp Act. The resolutions which he presented at this meeting were not only voted by the town, but attracted great attention throughout the province, and were adopted verbatim 
by more than forty different towns thus it is seen that adams had not studied hard all these years for nothing the price of success is honest faithful work of course his townspeople would reward him men who have ability unless some bolt is loose will invariably gain success soon after this mr adams was appointed on the part of the town of boston to be one of their counsel along with the king's attorney and head of the bar and james otis the celebrated orator to support a memorial address to the governor and council that the courts might proceed with business though no stamps were to be had although junior counsel it fell to adams to open the case for the petitioners as his seniors could not join the one owing to his position as king's attorney the other could not as he had recently published a book entitled the rights of the colonies this was a grand opportunity for adams and he made the most of it boldly taking the ground that the stamp act was null and void parliament having no right to tax the colonies nothing however came of this application the governor and council declining to act on the ground that it belonged to the judges not to them to decide but adams had put himself on record and this record established his reputation there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune the time came to adams to distinguish himself and he was not found wanting it was at this same period that mr adams first appeared as a writer in the boston gazette he never allowed his opportunities to pass unheeded in fact he made his opportunities among other papers which appeared at this time from his pen was a series of four articles which were republished in a london newspaper and subsequently published in a collection of documents relating to the taxation controversy printed in a large volume at first the papers had no title in the printed volume being known as essays on the canon and feudal law well they might have been called so but it seems to us that it would have been much more consistent to have entitled them essays on the government and rights of new england his style was formed from the first as is evident from the articles his law business continued to increase and in seventeen sixty eight he removed to boston where he would have a larger field in which to develop his intellect he served on various committees during the next two years and in seventeen seventy was chosen a representative to the general court notwithstanding he had just before accepted a retainer to defend captain preston and his soldiers for their share in what had passed into history as the boston massacre his ability as a practitioner at the bar can be judged from the successful result of their case as managed by him against great public prejudice adams's duties as a representative interfered much with his business as a lawyer on which he depended for support and which had grown to be larger than that of any other practitioner at the provincial bar he entered upon the duties of his new office with his customary energy becoming the chief legal adviser of the patriot party and now for the first time an active and conspicuous leader of the same mr adams's keen foresight enabled him to wisely judge that it would be a good policy not to push too vigorously to the front as a politician until his private wealth would justify his necessarily great loss of time hence he moved back to braintree resigning his seat in the legislature 
but still retaining his law office in Boston. A comparative lull in politics made his presence in that body less needed, but still he was consulted as to all the more difficult points in the controversy with Governor Hutchinson, and freely gave his aid. Indeed, it was not long before he moved back to Boston, but thoroughly resolved to avoid politics, and to devote his undivided attention to his professional work. Soon after his return to Boston, he wrote a series of letters on the then mooted question of the independence of the judiciary, and the payment by the Crown of the salaries of the judges. Soon after this, he was elected by the General Court to the Provincial Council, but was rejected by Governor Hutchinson. The destruction of tea and the Boston Port Bill that followed soon brought matters to a crisis. These events produced the Congress of 1774. Mr. Adams was one of the five delegates sent from Massachusetts, and his visit to Philadelphia at this time was the first occasion of his going beyond the limits of New England. In the discussions in the committee on the Declaration of Colonial Rights, he took an active part in resting those rights on the law of nature as well as the law of England. And when the substance of those resolutions had been agreed upon, he was chosen to put the matter in shape. In his diary, the most trustworthy and graphic descriptions are to be found of the members and doings of that famous but little known body. The session concluded, Mr. Adams left the city of brotherly love with little expectation at that time of ever again seeing it. Immediately after his return home, he was chosen by his native town, a member of the Provincial Congress then in session. That Congress had already appointed a committee of safety, vested with general executive powers, had seized the provincial revenues, had appointed general officers, collected military stores, and had taken steps toward organizing a volunteer army of Minutemen. The governor, Gage, had issued a proclamation denouncing these proceedings, but no attention was ever paid to it. Gage had no support except in the five or six regiments that guarded Boston, a few trembling officials, and a small following from the people. Shortly after the adjournment of this Congress, Adams occupied himself in answering through the press a champion of the mother country's claim. This party, under the head of Massachusettensis, had commenced a series of able and effective arguments in behalf of the mother country, which were being published in a Boston journal. To these, Adams replied over the signature of Novanglus. These were papers displaying unusual ability on either part. They were afterwards published as A History of the Dispute with America, and later yet in pamphlet form. Their value consists in the strong contemporaneous views which they present in the origin of the struggle between the colonies and the mother country, and the policy of Bernard and Hutchinson as governors of Massachusetts, which did so much to bring on the struggle. Like all the writings of Mr. Adams, they are distinguished by a bold tone of investigation, a resort to first principles, and a pointed style. But, like all his other writings, being produced by piecemeal, and on the spur of the moment, they lack order, system, polish, and precision. In the midst of the excitement produced by the Battle of Lexington, which at once brought up the spirit of even the most hesitating patriots to the fighting pitch, and which was speedily followed by the seizure of Ticonderoga and Crown Point, and by other similar seizures in other colonies throughout the fast uniting provinces, 
john adams once more set out for philadelphia to attend the continental congress of seventeen seventy five of which he had been appointed a member this congress though made up for the most part of the same men who had constituted that of the previous year was a wholly different body from its predecessor the congress of seventeen seventy four was merely a suggestive convention the present congress speedily assumed or rather had thrust upon it by unanimous consent of the patriots the exercise of a comprehensive authority in which supreme executive legislative and in some cases judicial functions were united in this busy scene the active and untiring adams one of whose distinguishing characteristics was his capacity and fondness for business found ample employment while his bold and pugnacious spirit was not a little excited by the hazards and dignity of the great game in which he had come to hold so deep a stake unlike many of that body adams had made up his mind that any attempt tending toward reconciliation was hopeless under the lead of dickinson though against the strenuous opposition of adams and others that body voted still another and final petition to the king however adams succeeded in joining with this vote one to put the colonies into a state of defence though with protestations that the war on their part was for defence only and without revolutionary intent not long after this congress was brought up to the point of assuming the responsibility and control of the military operations which new england had commenced by laying siege to boston in which town general gage and his troops were caged and before which lay an impromptu new england army of fifteen thousand men which the battle of lexington had immediately brought together urged by the new england delegates congress agreed to assume the expense of maintaining this army john adams was the first to propose the name of george washington for the chief commander his desire being to secure the good will and co-operation of the southern colonies the southern colonies also urged general lee for the second place but adams insisted on giving that to artemus ward he however supported lee for the third place having assumed the direction of this army provided for its reorganization and issued letters of credit for its maintenance this congress took a recess adams returned home but was not allowed any rest people who really have ability are never allowed to remain idle the fault is not in others but in us no sooner had mr adams arrived home than his massachusetts friends sent him as a member to the state council this council had under a clause of the provincial charter intended to meet such cases assumed the executive authority declaring the gubernatorial chair vacant on returning to philadelphia in september adams found himself in hot water two confidential letters of his written during the previous session had been intercepted by the british in crossing the hudson river and had been published in the boston papers not only did those letters evince a zeal for decisive measure which made the writer an object of suspicion to the more conservative of his fellow members of congress but his reference in one of them to the whims the caprice the vanity the superstition and the irritability of some of his colleagues and particularly to john dickinson as a certain great fortune but trifling genius made him personal enemies by whom he was never forgiven but though for a moment an object of distrust to some of his colleagues this did not save him from hard work 
About the time, he wrote, I am engaged in constant work, from seven to ten in the morning in committee, from ten to four in Congress, and from six to ten again in committee. Our assembly is scarcely numerous enough for the business. Everybody is engaged all day in Congress, and all the morning and evening in committee. The committee, which chiefly engaged Mr. Adams's attention at this time, was one on the fitting out of cruisers, and on naval affairs generally. This committee laid the foundation of our first navy, the basis of our naval code being drawn up by Adams. Governor Wentworth, having fled from New Hampshire, the people of that province applied to Congress for advice as to how to manage their administrative affairs. Adams, always ahead of his brother legislators, seized the opportunity to urge the necessity of advising all the provinces to proceed at once to institute governments of their own. The news, soon arriving of the haughty treatment of their petition by the king, added strength to his pleading, and the matter being referred to a committee on which Adams was placed, a report in partial conformity to his ideas was made and adopted. Adams was a worker, this was a recognized fact, and his state having offered him the post of Chief Justice of Massachusetts, Adams, towards the end of the year, returned home to consult on that and other important matters. He took his seat in the council, of which he had been chosen a member, immediately on his arrival. He was consulted by Washington, both as to sending General Lee to New York, and as to the expedition against Canada. It was finally arranged that while Adams should not accept the appointment of Chief Justice, he should still remain a delegate in Congress, until more quiet times should be excused as acting in the capacity of judge. Under this arrangement, he returned to Philadelphia. However, he never took his seat as Chief Justice, resigning that office the next year. Advice similar to that to New Hampshire, on the subject of assuming government, as it was called, had shortly afterwards been given upon similar applications to Congress, to South Carolina and Virginia. Adams was much consulted by members of the Southern delegation concerning the form of government which they should adopt. He was recognized as being better versed in the subject of republicanism, both by study and experience, coming as it did from the most thoroughly republican section of the country. Of several letters which he wrote on this subject, one more elaborate than the others was printed under the title of Thoughts on Government Applicable to the Present State of the American Colonies. This paper being largely circulated in Virginia, as a preliminary to the adoption of a form of government by that state, was to a certain extent a rejoinder to that part of Paine's famous pamphlet of Common Sense, which advocated government by a single assembly. It was also designed to controvert the aristocratic views, somewhat prevalent in Virginia, of those who advocated a governor and senate to be elected for life. Adams's system of policy embraced the adoption of self-government by each of the colonies, a confederation and treaties with foreign powers. The adoption of this system he continued to urge with zeal and increasing success, until finally, on May 13th, he carried a resolution through Congress, by which so much of his plan was endorsed by that body as related to the assumption of self-government by the several colonies. A resolution that the United States are and ought to be free and independent, introduced by R. H. Lee under instructions from the Virginia Convention, 
was very warmly supported by Adams, and carried seven states to six. These committees, one on the Declaration of Independence, another on Confederation, a third on Foreign Relations, were shortly formed. Of the first and third of these committees, Adams was a member. The Declaration of Independence was drawn up by Jefferson, but on Adams devolved the task of battling it through Congress in three days' debate, during which it underwent some curtailment. The plan of a treaty reported by the third committee and adopted by Congress was drawn up by Adams. His views did not extend beyond merely commercial treaties. He was opposed to seeking any political connection with France, or any military or even naval assistance from her or any other foreign power. On June the 12th, Congress had established a board of war and ordinance, to consist of five members with a secretary, clerk, etc., in fact, a war department. As originally constituted, the members of this board were taken from Congress, and the subject of this narrative was chosen its president and chairman. This position was one of great labor and responsibility, as the chief burden of the duties fell upon him. He continued to hold for the next 18 months, with the exception of a necessary absence at the close of the year 1776, to recruit his health. The business of preparing articles of war for the government of the army was deputed to a committee composed of Adams and Jefferson, but Jefferson, according to Adams's account, threw upon him the whole burden, not only of drawing up the articles, which he borrowed mostly from Great Britain, but of arguing them through Congress, which was no small task. Adams strongly opposed Lord Howe's invitation to a conference, sent to Congress through his prisoner, General Sullivan, after the Battle of Long Island. He was, however, appointed one of the committee for that purpose, together with Franklin and Routledge, and his autobiography contains some curious anecdotes concerning the visit. Besides his presidency of the Board of War, Adams was also chairman of the committee upon which devolved the decision of appeals in admiralty cases from the state courts, having thus occupied for nearly two years a position which gained for him the reputation, among at least a few of his colleagues, of having the clearest head and firmest heart of any man in Congress. He was appointed near the end of 1777 a commissioner to France, to supersede Dean, whom Congress had concluded to recall. He embarked at Boston, in the frigate Boston, on February 12, 1878, reaching Bordeaux, after a stormy passage, and arrived on April eighth at Paris. As the alliance with France had been completed before his arrival, his stay was short. He found that a great antagonism of views and feelings had arisen between the three commissioners, Franklin, Dean and Arthur Lee, of whom the embassy to France had been originally composed. As the recall of Dean had not reconciled the other two, Adams devised, as the only means of giving unity and energy to the mission, that it should be entrusted to a single person. This suggestion was adopted, and in consequence of it, Franklin having been appointed sole ambassador in France, Adams returned home. He arrived at Boston just as a convention was about to meet to form a state constitution for Massachusetts, and, being at once chosen a member from Braintree, he was enabled to take a leading part in the formation of that important document. Before this convention had finished its business, he was appointed by Congress as minister to treat with Great Britain for peace, 
and commerce under which appointment he again sailed for france in seventeen seventy nine in the same french frigate in which he previously returned to the united states contrary to his own inclinations mr adams was prevented by vergen the french minister of foreign affairs from making any communication of his powers to great britain in fact vergen and adams already were and continued to be objects of distrust to one another in both cases quite unfounded vergen feared least advances toward treating with england might lead to some sort of reconciliation with her short of the independence of the colonies which was contrary to his ideas of the interests of france the communications made to vergen by gerard the first french minister in america and adams's connection with the lees whom vergen suspected though unjustly of a secret communication through arthur lee with the british ministry led him to regard mr adams as the representative of a party in congress desirous of such a reconciliation nor did he rest until he had obtained from congress some two years after the recall of mr adams's power to negotiate a treaty of commerce and in conjunction with him of several colleagues to treat for peace of whom franklin who enjoyed his entire confidence was one adams on the other hand not entirely free from hereditary english prejudices against the french vehemently suspected again of a design to sacrifice the interests of america especially the fisheries and the western lands to the advancement of the spanish house of bourbon while lingering at paris with nothing to do except to nurse these suspicions adams busied himself in furnishing communication on american affairs to a semi-official gazette conducted by monsieur genet chief secretary in the foreign bureau and father of the french minister in america who subsequently rendered that name so notorious finding his position at paris uncomfortable he proceeded to holland in july seventeen eighty his object being to form an opinion as to the probability of borrowing money there just about the same time he was appointed by congress to negotiate a french loan the party who had been selected for that purpose previously laurent not yet being ready to leave home by way of enlightening the dutch in regard to american affairs adams published in the gazette of leyden a number of papers and extracts including several which through a friend he first had published in a london journal to give them an english character to these he added direct publication of his own afterward many times reprinted and now to be found in volume seven of his collected works under the title of twenty-six letters upon interesting subjects respecting the revolution in america he had commenced negotiations for a loan when his labours in that direction were interrupted by the sudden breach between england and holland consequent upon the capture of laurent and the discovery of the secret negotiation carried on between him and van berkel of amsterdam which though it had been entered into without authority of the dutch states was made an excuse by the british for a speedy declaration of war adams was soon after appointed minister to holland in place of the captured laurent and at the same time was commissioned to sign the articles of armed neutrality which had just made their appearance on the political scene adams presented memorials to the dutch government setting forth his powers in both respects but before he could procure any recognition he was recalled in july seventeen eighty one to paris 
by a notice that he was needed there in his character of minister to treat for peace adams's suspicion of vergennes had meanwhile been not a little increased by the neglect of france to second his applications to holland with vergennes the great object was peace the finances of france were sadly embarrassed and vergennes wished no further complications to the war provided the english colonies should be definitely separated from the mother country which he considered indispensable to the interest of france he was not disposed to insist on anything else it was for this reason that he had urged upon and just about this time had succeeded in obtaining from congress through the french minister in philadelphia though the information had not yet reached paris not only the withdrawal of adams's commission to treat of commerce and the enlargement to five of the number of commissioners to treat for peace but an absolute discretion entrusted to the negotiators as to everything except independence and the additional direction that in the last resort they were to be governed by the advice of vergennes the cause for sending for adams who still occupied as far as was known at paris the position of sole negotiator for peace the offer of mediation on the part of russia and the german empire but this offer led to nothing great britain haughtily rejected it on the ground that she would not allow france to stand between her and her colonies returning to holland mr adams though still unsupported by vergennes pushed with great energy his reception as ambassador by the states-general which at length april nineteenth seventeen eighty two he succeeded in accomplishing following up this success with his customary perseverance he succeeded before the end of the year in negotiating a dutch loan of nearly two millions of dollars the first of a series which proved a chief financial resource of the continental congress he also succeeded in negotiating a treaty of amity and commerce his success in these negotiations considering the obstacles with which he had to contend and the want of support from vergennes he was accustomed to regard as the greatest triumph of his life before the business was completed mr adams received urgent calls to come to paris where jay and franklin two of the new commissioners were already treating for peace and where he arrived october twenty sixth though mr jay had been put into the diplomatic service by the procurement of the party in congress in the french interest his diplomatic experience in spain had led him also to entertain doubts as to the sincere good will of vergennes a confidential dispatch from the french secretary of legation in america intercepted by the british and which oswald the british negotiator at paris communicated to franklin and jay with a view of making bad feeling between them and the french minister had along with other circumstances induced franklin and jay to disregard their instructions and to proceed to treat with oswald without communicating that fact to vergennes or taking his advice as to the terms of the treaty a procedure in which adams after his arrival fully concurred it was chiefly through his energy and persistence that the participation of america in the fisheries was secured by the treaty not as a favor or a privilege but as a right a matter of much more importance then than now the fisheries then being a much more important branch than now of american maritime industry immediately upon the signature of the preliminary articles of peace 
Adams asked leave to resign all his commissions and to return home, to which Congress responded by appointing him a commissioner jointly with Franklin and Jay to negotiate a treaty of commerce with Great Britain. His first visit to Britain was, however, in a private character, to recruit his health, after a violent fever with which he had been attacked shortly after signing the Treaty of Peace. He spent some time first at London and afterward at Bath, but while still an invalid he was recalled in the dead of winter to Holland, which he reached after a stormy and most uncomfortable voyage, there to negotiate a new loan as the means of meeting government bills drawn in America which were in danger of protest from want of funds, a business in which he succeeded. Adams was included, along with Franklin and Jefferson, the latter sent out to take the place of Jay, in a new commission to form treaties with foreign powers, and his being joined by Mrs. Adams and their only daughter and youngest son, his other two sons being already with him, reconciled him to the idea of remaining abroad. With the family about him, he fixed his residence in Auteuil, near Paris, where he had an interval of comparative leisure. The chief business of the new commission was the negotiation of a treaty with Prussia, advances toward which had first been made to Adams while at the Hague, negotiating the Dutch loan. But before the treaty was ready for signature, Adams was appointed by Congress as minister to the court of St. James, where he arrived in May 1785. The English government, the feelings of which were well represented by those of the king, had neither the magnanimity nor policy to treat the new American states with respect, generosity, or justice. Adams was received with civility, but no commercial arrangements could be made. His chief employment was in complaining of the non-execution of the Treaty of Peace, especially in relation to the non-surrender of the Western Posts, and in attempting to meet similar complaints urged not without strong grounds by the british more particularly with regard to the obstacles thrown in the way of the collection of british debts which were made an excuse for the detention of the western posts made sensible in many ways of the aggravation of british feelings towards the new republic whose condition immediately after the peace was somewhat embarrassing and not so flattering as it might have been to the advocates and promoters of the revolution the situation of Adams was rather mortifying than agreeable. Meanwhile, he was obliged to pay another visit to Holland to negotiate a new loan as a means of paying the interest on the Dutch debt. He was also engaged in a correspondence with his fellow commissioner, Mr. Jefferson, then at Paris, on the subject of the Barbary powers and the return of the Americans held captive by them. But his most engrossing occupation at this time was the preparation of his defence of the American Constitution, the object of which was the justification of balanced governments and a division of powers, especially the legislative, under the idea of a single assembly and a pure democracy, which had begun to find many advocates, especially on the continent. The greater part, however, of this book, the most voluminous of his publications, consists of summaries of the histories of the Italian republics, which, by the way, was not essential to the argument. Although it afterwards subjugated the author to charges of monarchical and anti-republican tendencies, this book was not without its influence on the adoption of the federal constitution, during the discussion of which the first volume appeared. 
Great Britain not having reciprocated the compliment by sending a minister to the United States, and there being no prospects of his accomplishing any of the objects of his mission, Adams had requested a recall, which was sent to him in February 1788. Accompanied by a resolution of Congress conveying the thanks of that body for the patriotism, perseverance, integrity, and diligence which he had displayed in his ten years' experience abroad. End of section 35. John Adams, part one.